Hello, and welcome to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. This podcast feed shares Socratic dialogue with invisible partners and allies, where we discuss and challenge our values and principles, and have honest discussions about the world. We hope that in doing so, we can see things outside of our plain sight with 2020 vision. Let's go. Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast. My guest today is Grace Matlich. She is a senior operations manager at Invisible. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So what is your take on knowledge management and the effects that this AI revolution will have on it? That is a great question. Um, I imagine not too long from now, it will be much easier for us to organize uh, the knowledge that we are managing as well as uh, search. I think that will be a huge revolution in terms of our ability to basically build massive internal repositories of information um, and navigate them smoothly and swiftly. Um, basically, every company will probably have its own internal Wikipedia. And what do you think is going to happen to software in general? You know, Right now, the state of software is that we interact with these pieces of software. They don't connect well together. Uh, and the idea of having something that is basically intelligent makes me think that software is going to change significantly and that there might be a future where we don't really use software in the same way that we do today. What's your take on that? I I think that's right on. I also imagine that if when I think of a lot of the software we're using today, I think of different um, fabric squares, right? And I imagine that we will knit it together into a really beautiful quilt in a way where we almost don't even notice that there are separate squares. Mm, that's cool. I like the uh, like the metaphor of the fabric squares. Um, uh, but do you think like w- one day we're just going to end up with an environment where we kind of talk with an intelligent agent and we just it just does the things that we want? Such that we don't even have to set up the API, for example, and connect the things ourselves. Um, yeah. yeah, I would imagine so, you know, if, if appropriate access is granted to the proper parts, um, I would, if we're imagining in you know, a few years down the line. So yeah, essentially it all comes down to access as well. This is a, I've been doing a lot of research on this new computing software called Urbit, uh, which is all a decentralized uh, computing platform that's building a whole new internet on top of a whole new operating system with its own programming language. Uh, And one of the interesting things about that specifically is that it's basically obviating the need for an API. And that API is basically, that's the, that's the connection between all of these different points on the internet is just, is this thing called an API that basically manages access to various parties. Um, Funny, funny uh, story. I, back in November, when I first got access to GPT 3.5, I started to build, um, I started to see whether it could program for me. Uh, And uh, it did program for me, but it programmed very badly. And uh, it didn't actually work and there's tons of bugs. And then so once GPT-4 came out, I was like, okay, I want to see whether this thing actually works for programming. Um, and uh, it, it definitely did worked and there was not a lot of bugs. It like worked right off the box. All I had to do was copy and paste and I'm not a programmer. Uh, but then I, I posted a video of me doing this uh, on LinkedIn and a programmer came in and I the GPT had told me to just like put the API access key directly inside the code. Um, and then, uh, one of the programmers was like, never, ever do that. You need to, you need to like make that hidden, never do that. Um, 
And uh, so it's really interesting. It's, 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 so, it's so interesting to talk to you because you've, you've been like working in this field. Um, and I'm, I, I don't know how much we can talk about it, how much we can't, but I would love to understand from your perspective, like, are you using um, it within your job? Like, can you guys use it inside uh, to help do this, do this job? Um, we are to some extent using this internally. Um, I'd like to get to a place where invisible as a whole, right. Is using it, or maybe it's like a, a tool that everyone gets onboarded with, um, with maybe mm -hmm. a suite of trainings around it. Uh, so yes, in terms of the AI space, we are using it for certain projects, not all, um, and where most applicable, but I would love to get to a place where, as a company, we're sort of driving internal GPT use um, and, and have a real focus on that for all partners and specialists. And what about agents? I think for agents as well. I'm, I'd be curious to see. I have limited visibility on sort of the projects outside of the AI space, um, but where applicable, definitely. And I think more and more... Um, I, I do think there is a project actually in development in the commercial ops space that will use GPT, which is exciting. But more and more, I think, especially at sort of the operations level, business development level, it would be great to have trainings around, you know, best practices, best way to, to leverage this tool. That's really cool. I d actually did one of those last week, uh, last Wednesday, where I was like, uh, where we did live training on GPT and we had a bunch of people bring their particular problems. And one of the, uh, I wasn't expecting it. One of the board members for Invisible ended up uh, joining. He had never used GPT and we actually did live, like he was doing financial. I asked him what he was doing inside of his normal, you know, in the last 24 hours that, um, that might work for this. And he said that he was doing financial analysis on these different companies. And so we actually had the GPT go and do that financial analysis. Uh, so the operations level, uh, internal GPT use, really interesting. Um, uh, let's let's take it more to like a philosophical lens. Like, what's your philosophy on wellness, and particularly like how these things can? Oh, uh, actually, I'm remembering. Maybe you said that uh, that that was actually not something we could talk about. But uh, um, uh, we can talk what, about wellness. We can yeah. talk about wellness. Yeah. Yeah, wellness and AI. What's the what's the relationship there? Sort of zooming out completely, sort of just outside of what we do at Invisible, and just my my philosophy on that. Yes. Um, when I think of wellness, health. Um, the medical space and AI and sort of how that will come together. I imagine us applying AI. I'm not sure how into the sort of the quantified self realm you've gotten. Um, I have an aura ring. I've always, uh, I have a background in longevity science and I've always been very interested in just as a hobby in, in health and wellness um, and how to quantify that for myself and push it to the next level. And so I kind of imagine a world where when I think of how the aura ring works and it tells you your readiness score, your sleep score. Um, I also imagine a time where, you know, wearables like that also measure um, how you're doing in the present moment. Right. But then have a predictive capacity added on to it. So maybe my aura rings telling me, wow, Grace, you haven't been breathing deeply enough today you've your stress level has been unusually high in order to sleep well tonight um you know you should wind down earlier uh because of your stress levels today your 
uh, blood glucose is likely to be much higher. You should prioritize protein at your next meal. Um, so sort of like in the short term, but then also maybe like on a quarterly basis where, you know, that quarterly report on how, how you're doing with your sleep and your health, um, is also working in a predictive capacity to tell you here's where you, where you've gone so far this year. Um, and here's what we're predicting for you, maybe for the next six to 12 months or even longer, right? If it's like, I've had an aura ring for a few years and the algorithm is like, you are on average more stressed and less ready than, you know, this percentage of people, you know, here's what we really should do for a life overhaul for you. Or, and you know, there are probably lots of different ways you can do it. But I also imagine the ability to, as we're talking about knitting together different software, like maybe knitting together um, information from different wearables, right? So if I have a, a CGM that I'm wearing, that's, you know, monitoring my blood glucose throughout the day, maybe that's mapping the data also with my aura ring or any other wearables um, and providing a really holistic view. Um, so that's just one, one small vision, but uh, I, I think we're on the road. Yeah, and no, this is, this gets into something I'd love to talk about more about, which is essentially we have this body, we have these minds, we have these metrics that type to, type to, that attempt to quantify who we are, uh, at least the observable things. But it's my take that we have a lot of unobservable things uh, that are going on inside of our bodies, in our spirit, in our, our minds. And those unobservable things can be quite, um, might not even be measurable. Uh, and from our cur current take from the, like the consensus view of science, and it seems like everything is just a matter of time until we have the right metrics. Um, but I kind of question that, like maybe there is parts of us that are unobservable, that are unknown unknowns and will never be known. Um, but this AI question is a very, very interesting one because now I am interacting with something that is far, at least gives the illusion of being far smarter than me, uh, on a whole range of different topics. So like, it's starting to make me question how little, how unobservable, how, how much there is unobservable. Maybe we're just human beings that are completely mapped out, that can be completely mapped out by a machine that's smarter than us. What, what's your take on that? Um, I hope there continue to be unknown unknowns uh, based on my previous experience and, and long personal health journey. Um, I, I imagine that we will reach a place where enough is mapped that people are maybe temporarily duped into thinking that, uh, they have, they do have it all figured out and that they are in quote unquote, perfect health and they know their biological age and it's incredible. And, uh, they feel, they feel intellectually like they're superhuman, but maybe they feel spiritually and emotionally, uh, mm -hmm. not quite well. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine we will reach a place where people maybe are optimizing their physical bodies, but realizing that there are other components there that might not be syncing up, um, or that are met that, you know, aspects that are not measurable that need to be addressed. Um, I don't even want to say solved for because like spiritual, emotional health isn't, is an ongoing lifelong journey. And it's not something that you, you solve one time and same with the body too. It's a moving target, all of this is a moving target as well. Um, so, well, I think we will continue to have tools that support us in a deeper way. And I'm actually excited about the 
you know, the unlock for many people at scale in terms of just health baseline health literacy mm-hmm. um, and opportunities available for people to improve their health just in their home. Um, I think that will be incredible. I have, you know, a family member who has a medical condition and has used GPT to write a health and wellness plan for them for their specific medical condition. And I reviewed it, um, (laughs) given my nutrition science background. And I was like, this is actually phenomenal. Um, And if more people had access to that tool and knew how to use it in the right ways, I can just imagine, um, you know, many people flourishing and feeling empowered in their lives. Yeah, something you said earlier reminded me of a term called uh, the shamanic illness or spiritual sickness. It's like the the sickness is a is a symptom of something else that's going on, and it reminds me of just in terms of modernity in general. Like modernity solved all these like really really hard problems for humanity about how to get the food that you need, how to find housing, how to, uh, you know, do all these things. Obviously it's not solved for everybody, but in our country there, it is solved at a high degree. Um, and, uh, and, but we still had that underlying spiritual kind of lack, uh, and, this, uh, like this, this, this hole that wasn't being filled. And I found a lot from my own chronic health issues and a lot of other people that the, that the sickness is in a way is sort of a gift as well, because it's a gift in the sense that it's showing you where, where you could be living life more fully. And even though it's more challenging to actually go into the sickness and go um, the way is through, not around or about, it's like, it's actually like through it and to understand it. And so there's like, and I wonder if something similar is going to happen with this intelligent agent. Cause now it's like, um, you know, before we've solved a lot of the problems about food and and housing and water and all these different things that that were really big and now allowed us to realize how empty we feel on the inside at a lot of times. And I'm wondering how this intelligent agent will also play into that role of having this thing where it's just like what well, I wonder what types of things we're going to understand from from having this this thing that's like way way smarter than us what, what do you think about that I agree I also always question sort of how deep does the solution go because like there there are access issues right with with food and produce but um is that produce organic has it been sprayed with mm-hmm. pesticides so maybe on one level Uh, We think we've solved the, you know, healthy food access issue, but maybe we're actually poisoning people at the same time on a different level. Um, Also, how are we tending to the soil? Are we using regenerative practices? So I think like there's a, there are solutions that we think that we achieve. And then sometimes we create even more problems or we've solved on a surface level uh, without going all the way to the root. Um, And it's, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see when AI is applied to certain problems, um, sort of at which level it's it's providing solutions. Uh, I would love to go into that question. We don't have to specific, specify it according to the to AI or anything like that. We can go. We'll, we'll just we can drop that. And and how do you identify the root of a problem? Uh, it's something I've been thinking a lot about of like because there's all these symptoms. Most people confuse the symptom for the root problem. And always try to attack the symptoms, which you know you you can definitely find palliative care for the symptoms. But how do you actually find the root? And then once you find the root, how do you actually address the root in a way that doesn't piss everybody off? Because I find when I try to when I try to go directly for the root, I end up angering a lot of people. Um, and maybe that anger is productive, but sometimes it's not productive, and and I end up in situations I'd rather not be in. Uh, how do you how do you identify the root, and then also try to find out solutions for that root problem? 
I think personally, I use curiosity as my guide through that whole process. So whether it's trying to get to the root of, you know, a chronic health issue that I'm having, um, or it's an issue at work that we're, you know, we're trying to solve operationally, um, curiosity is always my best friend in, in any of these situations. And it, and it works to my advantage because if you can get others on board with that curiosity so that you're not, not the only one sort of involved in that discovery process, you typically can get buy-in from other people to one, help you find the route. And then two, when you do find the route, um, really sort sort of dismantle it. And sometimes the problem is so great that you realize that just attacking the root will, you know, really cause a big problem for a lot of people and upend things for them. And so I think it's important to take the time to diagnose the situation, understand how people are impacted um, by creating, by solving at the root, because it can feel painful. And, and we're actually doing this right now operationally by digging into various systems, really trying to get to the root and solve, not at a Band-Aid level. Um, it takes a lot longer to do this, but to build a system for a mature project and process that will work for us for many months to come. Um, it's taken a long discovery. It's taken a long build for us locally, and it will take a while to implement and get everyone on board. But I've brought as many people into the process as possible um, so that it's not me off hunting on my own, me saying, here's the problem. Here's how I'm going to fix it and have everyone go, what the heck? <laughs> like we're changing everything tomorrow. And so bringing people along for the ride as much as possible, I think, um, is important, especially if you're changing the picture that they're living in, right? Like you want their um, their involvement and their collaboration and their buy-in in that process. That's really interesting. It mirrors something I'm gonna we're going to attempt to do soon, is which is that the notion workspace on for invisible is is somewhat disorganized, but there's a bunch of people who already have their habits set into that, and I can't think of a more kind of sensitive thing. Like, uh, like imagine somebody coming in and cleaning your room and putting something that you put down in a specific place that's really useful for you and then moving that somewhere else. That's what we're going to basically do for the whole ent entire organization. Do you have any tips for me on how to do that in a, in a way that is uh, uh, based on what you learned from what you've just done? Yeah. Well, talk to me about it first. I'd love to hear about it. Um, I want to hear what you're thinking. Um, I, I think warning people, especially like at a company level, anytime there's going to be a massive shift is, is preparing people psychologically for that change, um, is key and maybe even phasing it if need be, um, as well as getting people's participation, right? So if, if you're moving everything for people versus there's a benefit to doing it for everyone, because you know, it's going to get done. Um, mm. uh, but then as a result, you might not get the same level of long-term compliance because you actually did the work for them. So yeah. it might be more painful to have people collaborate in any sort of migration or organization changes that you're creating. But if you actually force, uh, several people to be involved in migrating their stuff over or changing their formatting, um, it will teach them from the beginning how they should be doing it long-term. That's really interesting. It helps me to figure out something that happened a, a month back about move. So we have one workspace, um, and then we, where invisible rests everything, but we're now moving to infinity. So we're going to branch out into a lot of different workspaces. Um, and, I uh, got the direction to move 
some things over to the other workspaces in order to accord with this expansion. Um, and I just moved it. I didn't even realize I had the option to ask people to move it themselves. And now looking back on it, that probably would have been a much better way to do it was asking them to move it to another place instead of me just moving it, which it goes back to this question of, uh, unknown knowns unknown no known unknowns and then unknown unknowns um and there's so many things that like in life in general like i, I was i was i wrote a tweet yesterday i was trying to figure this out is that you know i've 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 i like to tinker with a lot of things um and i get myself into situations which uh are like yeah i have no idea going in how difficult these situations are going to be but like oh that's cool i'll, I'll try that uh, and then I realized that like, I'll never ever be able to an ask all the right questions, like know which questions to ask. So my take now is to basically just ask as many questions as possible. Um, and, but that can be an issue as well. Cause then you're overloading people with, with, with a lot of questions, but it's like, there's so many things in my life that like, for example, I, I bought a house in the woods. I knew that and you, I think you guys have the same problem over there in Colorado, but I knew that the fires were getting really bad. Um, uh, but I didn't really know we had the smoke in California and San Francisco, you know, for three years running straight and then pandemic came and I moved right into the forest, um, bought a house with beautiful woods everywhere. I love the woods. Uh, now I'm realizing how insane the fire risk is up here. Um, and so buying the house around fires, having no idea that insurance just left the whole state of California, basically. So they, they just dropped. They said, we're out. It's not working. Anymore. Yes. I read that. Yeah. Uh, and I think Colorado is probably going to have similar, similar problems at some point too. Um, and just like, and then we had a huge snowstorm in March. It was actually my first day of starting at invisible. Uh, uh, we, it was the third day of a snowstorm and we lost power for two weeks. Uh, it was totally snowed in, uh, as my first day on a remote job. Um, and, uh, and then the, my roof collapsed, uh, during the snowstorm because of the snow load. Um, and then. I had called the insurance people before when it was snowing. I was like, I'm covered for this, right? I'm covered for this. And so, and they said, yeah, yeah you're covered, blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, then I call afterwards uh, and I'm like, okay, so uh, this happened. And now it's like a huge problem that there are so many little details that I had no idea that I was dealing with. So no, not even the ability to know which questions to ask that gets me into a huge trouble later. I think I have a particular fate fate situation where I end up in these situations a lot, but how do you deal with these unknown unknowns in li life? And have you experienced any in the recent past where you've learned some important lessons from those? Yeah. I mean, the great thing about an unknown unknown is that you, you don't know what's there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there's a, a, a level of ignorance is bliss. Um, I, I think in general, I have a really uh, strong comfort with sort of the abyss of unknown that we're constantly surrounded by in life um, through my own personal experiences. Uh, and I've been tested a lot in that regard. So I have a, I think it's just a strong baseline comfort and trust knowing that more, more unknown unknowns will soon become known and enter my field as known unknown. And uh, I will address them as they arise. Uh, it pretty much happens on a daily basis at this point, yeah. uh, both in work and life. Right. And um, I'm pretty comfortable living in a world where that's the reality uh, and I don't really trip up over it. So uh, trust, you mentioned trust. What do you have trust in and uh, is how is that trust related to faith if at all? 
Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I have, I was talking to Zohar about this recently, actually. I have a, a lot of trust and conviction in myself and my ability to uh, navigate the unknown, navigate hardship, uh, deal with challenges that arise, whatever they may be. Um, so I think, you know, that trust is in, in myself and trust in that whatever's coming, I can handle. And so then I think that ties into sort of faith in sort of the greater order of the universe um, and, and faith that I'm, I'm being given what I can handle and uh, that there is a deep lesson in it for me, even if it feels painful in the moment it comes into my field, like, why, what is this? Mm. Um, there, there truly is always uh, a lesson um, and, a, and a wonderful growth opportunity for me on the other side of that pain or discomfort. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. The greater order of the universe uh, this might be a too personal question, and if that's the case, uh, feel free to we can move on. But uh, where did that res- resiliency and trust in yourself come from? Like, w- was that always the case, or did it did it appear after like learning some things? Actually, um, quite the opposite. I would say that I grew up um, pretty sort of skittish. Um, I had a lot. I had a lot of uh, strong observational powers. I would say as a child. And uh, took on sort of the emotions and the energy of others, even strangers. Um, And it sort of left me feeling unsure and uncomfortable about just like, what is this world and how does it work? And who am I and what am I feeling versus what is another person feeling that I'm picking up on? I didn't have that level of discernment from a young age. So I just sort of like absorbed it all. Um, And I think I, I didn't have a lot of of trust or faith, you know, I saw my parents did, and that was modeled for me Mm. based on my own personal somatic experience. Mm. I didn't have that until I went through my own tests in life. I, you know, was sick from a pretty young age that all of that peaked in my mid twenties. Um, when I got very ill, I had a few surgeries and I had a near death experience and sort of going through that whole phase of life where I felt like I, I lost just about everything. Um, and, and had to rebuild my, my body, my mind, my spirit, my life. Um, that sort of, I felt like I was forged in the fire in a lot of ways. And, um, well, in some ways I could say, looking back that, yes, I sort of built some trust with myself and got some more conviction as I went along my journey and had sort of smaller, bumps in the road and hardships as one does. It was really that time in my life that solidified it for me um, and got me comfortable being just with me, like me in the universe, me and and life and me versus me. I think I had sort of, I was stuck in the comparison trap probably in my younger years, like many are. Mm. And really that experience when I was healing after my surgeries and my near-death experience, we were living in Oregon actually. And I didn't know anyone. We moved right after that experience. I didn't know a single soul. I didn't even, I hardly knew where I was. I never had been to to Oregon or this area of Oregon before we moved there. And I, it was just me with me all day, every day. My husband was in graduate school and it was sort of the most profound time in my life. I didn't want to really interact with others or be around others because I was having such a deep experience of myself and regenerative experience of myself. 
And so I sort of needed those years to cocoon and, and go through a deep self-study. And, and through that time, I was able to realize, like, I can handle anything, whatever, whatever comes my way, mm. good, bad, ugly. And I'm here for all of it. And I'm grateful for all of it. That's very cool. It's interesting that it happened for you so young, uh, that that experience of, of going through these incredible medical challenges uh, and near-death experience as well uh, at such a young age, because I think a lot of people don't even get close to that until they're older. I know that I had some of that when I was younger. I definitely had a, young, a, a challenging childhood, but uh, but in terms of that, what you just experienced or what you, you said you experienced, uh, that has only happened to me recently in the last like seven years, basically. And I'm I'm still very close to that initial state or that stage where you got where maybe it's a rock bottom, maybe it's the near death experience where you really challenges you at a self knowledge level as to who you are, and then finding that unbreakability. Um, that is a, that has only been a very recent thing for me. And then there's like each time I think I got it, a new challenge comes with a much much more uh, like oh do it do I can I really handle this or am I sure about this? Um, and uh, so it's really interesting. This relates to the next question I want to ask, which is it sounds like that was a big problem of scarcity, like, you know, not having energy due to medical surgeries and stuff like that. Now it seems that you're dealing with abundance um, and uh, particularly in your new role, uh, like you've got a very interesting role in a very interesting company at a very interesting time. Uh, and there's a lot of problems that come with it, but you know, problems of abundance are different than problems of scarcity. Uh, and how do you deal with this, the problems of abundance specifically given your, your experience of having problems of scarcity? Hmm. It's su such an interesting dichotomy there because sometimes I think that when you have problems of abundance, they create problems of scarcity, right? Oh, um, so when you have an overabundance of opportunity, like you might have a scarcity of, of people to support that. Um, if you have an overabundance of work, uh, you might have a scarcity of capacity for individuals and scarcity of energy. Um, so I think it's been a beautiful lesson for me to feel into the abundance and all the opportunity that that holds. Um, and then on a personal level, managing capacity and managing energy. And it's something I'm still mm. actively working on in my life and for those around me, um, because when there's so much abundance. I mean, we could, we could make the metaphor super simple, right? With food. Like if you have access to all the most gorgeous, delicious food in the world, how do like, do you have an appetite anymore? Do you, have, you know what I mean? Like, how do you manage hunger and health and appetite when you have boundless, uh, a boundless buffet in front of you? Yeah. And so it's, it's really a matter of being able to toggle your vision in and out and manage your own energy and capacity because with the incredible amount of opportunity we have um you know there's just an endless stream of work and evolution and and thought and effort that I could put into this but I've had to learn that my my downtime and my sort of reset time is so key to my ability to regenerate and then provide great insight and great leadership and energy for others so um, it's it's striking a it's important to strike strike a balance there and lead for others because I do think when there is an overabundance of of opportunity and work and growth um, there can be scarcity of of energy and it can challenge uh, the mentality of others. 
That's a great take on the scarcity issue that problems of abundance actually create problems of scarcity in terms of capacity uh, and opportunities and and actual. And, and so there's a couple of different questions we could ask. We could go back to the AI uh, kind of theme of like how those problems of abundance that we're talking about, how will AI change the problems of scarcity related to those uh, problems? The other question I would love to ask you specifically is, do you have to schedule your downtime? Does your downtime show up at various times or are you able to keep it scheduled in a in a good way so we can go either question you want to talk about oh i'd love to talk about both in terms of my downtime i like to generally sort of schedule my work day um and and i'm working on gaining more autonomy over mm -hmm. my time over mm -hmm. the next few weeks that's mm -hmm. actually an important personal initiative that i have right now um but i i am sort of a, I'm a consistent person in the workplace, uh, maybe to a fault, but I'm pretty um, inconsistent, maybe less in the typical, uh, you know, human term, like not a negative connotation, but I like to flow in, yep. in the rest of my life. And so um, I, I love to have a solid morning routine, but I really love to have times of the day blocked where I can flow and decide the degree to which I want to move. I want to sit and rest. I want to read or listen and absorb, uh, synthesize, shed off all of those good things. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not, I think sometimes when I'm, when I'm busiest and really at capacity, I do sometimes schedule out every little thing. So I make sure that I protect that time, but on the whole, even if I have something scheduled, I always like just personally reserve the right to change my mind or mm -hmm. shift how I'm going to use that time block. Um, I have like my own personal battle of self with over scheduling and over restricting, um, my time, my resources and sort of to maintain an abundant mindset. I really like to just have that agreement with myself that my time is mine and mm -hmm. uh, I reserve the right to sort of reschedule my, my off time or use it however I choose, because I, I do wonder, um, and it'd be interesting to just explore this with people who do really schedule their time, if they feel free, uh, more free by doing that, or if on some level they feel chained to the task list and mm -hmm. like sort of that structure um, and sort of where that comes from for people, right? I think people are create more structure impulsively when they feel out of control. I think that's mm -hmm. just a typical human impulse um and so in some ways maybe that feels a little freeing because you feel like you you would know the boundaries of your life and your time and yourself um but i think for me personally i like to to have a good amount of open-ended time to see how i'm feeling on a given day what do i want to work on uh, one of my another personal initiative of mine for next quarter is to make sure that i have big blocks of time in my schedule where i can see what's coming up this week for my people, for me, my project, mm. how do I want to spend this time today? What do I want to dig into so that I'm not deciding a week in advance how I'm spending my Tuesday afternoon. I actually have the the freedom to um, decide that on the day and then actually, you know, produce something really valuable because I've had that time to do the deep work. Yeah. This is such an interesting question. I've, I've marked the other question so we can come back to it later. Uh, the, uh, one of the people that I enjoy reading a lot is Naval Ravikant uh, on on Twitter, uh, founder of AngelList, and 
Um, he just tweeted about his new company uh, and they're completely asynchronous. So, uh, you know, Invisible is a half async, half sync company. We do a lot of meetings. We do a lot of, we do a lot of like uh, time, valuable time where we meet together. Uh, a company like GitLab is like 80% async. They'll schedule meetings. Uh, Naval Ravikant's new company is completely asynchronous. Uh, so absolutely no scheduled meetings. And I've, I've, I've um, actually developed a new uh, process for doing podcasts with people like this who are already successful, don't need to have any stakeholders they need to worry about, and just basically don't want to schedule anything. Because usually I would schedule my podcasts. I tried to schedule him on the podcast a couple of times. Ended up, uh, I got a, on, I ended up uh, interviewing his pod, podcast, or I sorry, ended up interviewing his favorite uh, wellness coach. I don't even know if you could call him a wellness coach, like a spiritual as, uh, I don't know, but uh, uh, his main guy. And um, uh, and so I ended up interviewing him, but then I developed this new process to actually uh, do, like I built up a huge e email list of all the people that ha are like this that I know and said, and just started sending them emails like, hey, do you want to do a podcast right now? Um, so like no scheduling, just an email list and it worked out really well. Um, and uh and so it's it's a it's a really interesting thing because I find this a lot of people who have reached that point of like post economic who are just like completely in control of their time, never wanting to schedule anything ever again. Um, and it's because of what you said about responding to the conditions that are arising at the moment. And maybe there's some more value in that. And I think a lot about like all the work that could be done, all the work that should be done, and the difference between the two, um, and how important some work is, and how unimportant other work is, but because a lot of people value it as important, even though it's not really important, a lot of it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of things there as well. If you have anything to respond on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've tried to sort of self-evaluate this because I know a lot of people at the company use reclaim.ai, for example, for their time. And I have just a, a personal layer of resistance <laughs> there because I'm like, nobody tell me what to do with all the time. I don't want, and that's not how I personally am, like would want to use AI. I get that some people love it, but I'm like wanting to maintain that sort of uh, be the designer of my own life mentality. Um, and, and that's one, everyone has different things they want to outsource. That's one thing that I personally don't want to outsource at this point in time. Um, but when I think about running an async company, I think it would be fascinating to do an experiment um, and see what would happen if like, at least internally, we, I know we have a lot of client work that we do, but at least mm. internally, we did like a, a one to two week uh, period where it was like, everything is async, ooh. even all hands like we had today, like that yeah. was a recording um, and people engaged with it async. Ooh. I mean, it would be fascinating to do an internal experiment and see what happened, what people produced during that time. Like how people feel after that two weeks. Like, was it a refresh? Was it challenging? Did people miss things? Um, and then just, you know, find what's the best balance for us. Maybe it's, maybe it's 60% meetings and 40% async work mm -hmm. or something like that. But I don't think we would necessarily know what we're missing unless, <laughs> unless we tried it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you do that at your team level? Have you thought about doing that at your team level? We do it a lot at my team level. Um, we have a few crucial meetings where we sort of align on the project as a whole because there are so many different parts, like 15 to 20 different 
you know, projects within the project. Mm. Um, it's really the only time that, that the team really gets to zoom out and sort of understand the whole picture. Um, but I have found ways of, of sort of solving on some level, like we do sort of these weekly business reviews with the client. And so I send sort of a, a written summary to all of my leads and I tag them in any updates that are relevant for them. So instead of doing a live meeting, I found like that's the best use of time for everyone. And usually by the time I get around to giving that update later in the day, some of my leads are already offline. Um, I have a lead who lives in India. So he's, mm. he starts his day before me, ends it before I do. So yeah, I think at the team level, we do we do a really good job with async communication. And a, a big driver I had this quarter was talking more about clear communication, how to communicate clearly, because that's another thing that yeah. you would uncover and diagnose in, in an async work environment is who communicates well and who doesn't, and how do we immediately up-level everyone's communication skills so that we have sort of a standard set? Because if you're working async, I don't know if you've had this experience working with someone who maybe is not a great communicator and you have to ask clarifying questions yep. to get to the heart. So imagine working with someone like that in an async environment, it might take three days to, to get the answer with back and forth versus um, in a more synchronous environment being able to cut through. Yeah, where you just call them. Uh, it's such an yeah. interesting problem because it does depend so much on personality. And that's, I think, where the cultural thing comes in. I'm pretty sure that Naval Ravikant is making sure that anybody he hires is an extremely good, clear communicator on async. Um, and uh, it just goes, it's funny that going into the personal, personalities and stuff like that, what makes, I'll just, I'll, I'll uh, name it specifically, like Francis, uh, Francis is one of the best communicators that I've ever, ever had the opportunity to work with. Uh, and he just like one sentence, I get it. I understand it. I go and work and I do that. Uh, and then uh, other people are not that way. And, uh, and, uh, and like, it might not even be a training. I know that I have really poor communication skills like 10, 15 years ago. Now I would say that I have intermediate to advanced levels of communication. A lot, a lot of that actually has to do with the podcast because the podcast has trained me over and over and over again, how to clearly articulate what I'm trying to talk about. Um, but mostly from a, actually um, interesting, the importance of questions in terms of communications. Cause I, I in my podcast, I usually try to go back to as much as I possible of asking the other person a question so that they elicit something interesting from them. Uh, but I don't have as much experience, although I've gotten a lot of it, more of it in the last couple of years of actually clearly communicating what's going on in my internal state. Um, but yeah, fascinating thing. Do you think that communication is something that can be trained or is it something that you already have? Both. I think I was born a gifted communicator. I've always, especially written, spoken has come later for me. Um, written was always sort of my my communication mode of choice uh, when I was younger and I was a gifted writer, um, but I was a little shy in terms of verbal communication and couldn't quite connect the two. And then I worked for two years as a crisis counselor, mm. answering the phones uh, for the National Suicide Hotline mm. and for a local crisis center where, when I lived in Bozeman, Montana. And that was a lot of hours on the phone, <laughs> talking to people of all kinds, from all backgrounds, um, and listening. So I think that job for two years of that work trained me incredibly well um, to listen and synthesize and reflect and speak and guide people. 
Um, it was something, it was an incredibly challenging experience in some yeah. ways, incredibly um, fulfilling in, in many ways. And if I were talking to anyone who wants to improve their, their spoken communication skills, I would encourage them to volunteer at a crisis hotline um, because it will teach you how to listen live, how to synthesize, how to talk to people of all kinds um, and how, how to guide them in various ways. And it's really about guiding them back to themselves, like guiding them to guide themselves. That was always our philosophy. That's really interesting. It makes me think uh, Zappos. Zappos does a thing where they would have everybody do customer service calls. Uh, it doesn't matter which part of the organization are you are in, you do the customer service calls. And it would be really interesting to to to, uh, to have people who uh, need some help with communication and put them on the suicide hotline. I don't think it would be a very smart thing to do because then uh, there'd be some challenging um, incentives there uh, that would, wouldn't mix very well. Um, and they would need a lot of training, um, yeah. but definitely some form of, you know, working with people who are challenged, whether it's from a customer service level or with their mental health or with a physical situation mm. that they need guidance for. Um, it, that's what honestly really got me into operations was mm. like working in that environment where I was working with uh, a database of resources. I was working with local law enforcement uh, and I was pairing people in need with different resources uh, and understanding the importance of, and this was like a small nonprofit, but understanding the importance of running a really clean, clear operation uh, because like, I can't think of stakes any higher than that. Like you could say right now and what we're doing, the stakes are high, but those were people's lives. And so it, it's never more important to run a really perfect operation than when people's lives are on the line. Yeah. And also there's the connection to invisibles. Uh, a lot of people came, come from the army, also a place where a lot of important things are on the line as well. Um, yes. So let's uh, last uh, 10 minutes or so. Let's go back to this question about AI changing the problems of scarcity uh, that we experience or cha changing the problems of capacity. Cause, and I'll set this up a little bit more. Uh, We've been talking about communication. We've been talking about other people and communicating with other people related to work. One of the challenges that I experience is that all of the miscommunications that can happen that create something that doesn't exist, um, and that, but that then creates something that does exist, which is a problem in communication and a problem of, of work and, and capacity and, and follow through. Uh, and with the AI bot, I don't experience any of that. Because even if it does misunderstand me, it <laughs> forgets in the next couple rounds. Uh, but then, uh, but then it's, it's not taking it personally. I'd have no problem. Like I, I know that it's not taking it personally. I know that it's not creating these worlds that, that exist that don't exist. Although maybe it will. Do you think once we give AI long-term memory, uh, that it will start to create personality issues or problems or anything like that? Personality issues in people? No, no, in the in the bot. So like, so so you know, we have this bot. I talk with the bot every day. It doesn't, after about four or five rounds of conversation, it stops remembering the previous four or five rounds of conversation. I know that there are attempts to give it long-term memory. If you have any insight into the into the kind of background of this, it'd be very fascinating to talk to. But um, uh, but like, I know that they're talking about things like Pinecone. Pinecone is a vector database that AutoGPT is using that give, supposedly will give it long-term memory. I was just, I asked a bunch of these questions on Twitter yesterday and, and didn't get very good answers, but I imagine, or I heard one of the problems of giving it long-term memory is like, how do you actually choose what to have it have long-term memory? 
on the way that that's solved with human beings is emotion, emotional salience. So like whatever is really emotion, emotionally salient, whether good or bad, that's what we remember. Um, but uh, yeah, do you have any uh, takes on uh, long-term memory for uh, the chatbots um, or in general, like whether once we give it long-term memory, what do you think will happen? Um, I'm less concerned with sort of like uh, right off the bat anyway, with what happens once we give it long-term memory and it's like, what happens to us in the process? Mm. Um, will one question I, I ask myself, um, is will we become more transactional in our communication with people if we're transactional with communication with an AI, right? If we, if we get used to using a tool in our day-to-day lives saying, do this, remember that. And, and sort of that's our, our mode of communicating what's stopping us from, from talking to other people that way. And so um, I actually think it's sort of fundamental that we, while we remember the AI is a tool here to help us, like when we interface with it, um, we do so in a respectful way that's reflective of the way we want to communicate with all beings, because mm-hmm. the risk is that we actually train ourselves to be incredibly transactional and uh curt and rude right with with the way that we talk to one another um in terms of long-term memory i think it's probably only a matter of time um and when i think of you know the capacity problem that you you mentioned and sort of ai assisting with that i think a lot about the ways in which sort of my time right now might be freed up others, you know, there are certain jobs that, you know, we know probably won't exist anymore in the future. Um, and many, many more jobs that will be created as a result of AI. And so, um, I think a lot about like, I was making an Asana board earlier today for a project plan. And I was like, Oh man, it would have been great if I had, AI in the room with me, listening to this call, making notes, and then turning it into like a V1 of an Asana project plan. And then ideally, uh, you know, watching me reorganize the plan after it made a V1 to learn how I like my Asana plans, and then could always make an Asana project plan based on that. Uh, And then be in every meeting with me checking off the things that I've gotten done. Um, And that would just save me, you know, day over day and week over week decent chunk of time. Now imagine that that uh, problem gets solved among all the different pieces of software that you use. Now imagine all the time that you spend every day trying to do that and communicating with all these different people. And so imagine a year, two years ahead, like, are we in a utopia? I think that's a challenge to answer because I think everyone actually has a different definition of what a utopia is. So we're maybe in someone's utopia. Uh, We're probably already in, if you think of ancient times, we're already living in someone's utopia um, in some ways, maybe Tesla, not quite Tesla's utopia, but getting closer and closer. Um, But I think it frees us up to be all the more creative and all the more connected. Um, I think just as much as I have concerns about us becoming more transactional in terms of our communication, I think more than ever, we will come to value uh, human connection and facilitation of, of human on human communication and group settings and all of that. And so, you know, imagine an offsite where our work is being done for us while we're gone on the most part, like on a basic level. And we, 
we feel really freed up to be together and have new experiences and not feel like we're falling behind um, or a ball is getting dropped. And so I think actually on, on some level, we, be, we all will rise to the level of facilitator mm-hmm. uh, more than sort of actor. Mm-hmm. We, will, we will work in concert with the tools that we've been given. Uh, we will facilitate a lot of work. We will facilitate, you know, we'll always need humans in the loop. We're, we're people where we need to be together and connected in some way, shape or form. And there are always variables, uh, at least for now. Mm-hmm. AI doesn't have eyes yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're seeing maybe that AI isn't. Mm-hmm. And um, it's important that we facilitate these tools appropriately um, and ensure others' well-being. So as someone who has a lot of soft skills, uh, I'm actually really excited for the future to further develop and sort of unlock and unleash and, and be valued for those soft skills. I think in the workplace previously, you know, in the past several decades, maybe mm-hmm. soft skills have been mm-hmm. overlooked in a lot of ways. And I actually think that may flip in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And even just when we think beyond this in our lives, um, I think all the time about uh, manual labor and mm-hmm. that's, you know, my plumber makes a lot of money and mm-hmm. probably his job will only become more and more valuable when you think of trades. So there are certain things that we will begin to value differently. I think our values as a society will change and, you know, the money that we apply to those things will change. Mm, that's fascinating. Um, interesting. Yeah. The utopia, it's a, it's subjective opinion as to what a utopia is not, uh, what, a, what it is and what it's not. Do you think- yeah, but utopia, do you mean like no one's working, we're all on universal basic income and like things are just sort of like happening? I'm curious. Well, that would be a dystopia for me. Anyway. <laughs> okay. um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, utopia, I, well, I'm, I'm skeptical anybody throws a utopia word out there. So it was a little bit of a trap of a question, but, uh, but, uh, but I, 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 I don't think that we're headed for a utopia. I think a lot of people think we're headed for a utopia, but I think as we've been talking about, like, you know, AI is going to take away a lot of things, but as the, we take a lot of those things, just as, as soon as you solve pro- one problem, you notice all the other problems around there and you just forget about that problem. And then you look at all the other problems. Like, I, I don't think the human nature of, of seeing problems everywhere is going to go away. Cause that's like so fundamental to us. So I think, I think that we're, I think a lot of things are definitely going to get easier. I think there's a lot of grunt work is going to be replaced, but I think we'll find new ways, new ways of finding new grunt work and that human element that we've been discussing uh, that like that tension and conflict that come between human beings, that's definitely not going away. And AI is definitely not solving that. And I think that's responsible for 99% of our, our emotional wellness type of issues is, is human and human conflict. So I, I think, uh, but I, I'm, I am very interested because I grew up in an area where uh, uh, the Bay area, where a lot of people think we're headed to a utopia singularity. Um, and then over the past couple of years, I've started to become really, really skeptical of that. And uh, so um, I don't know. Uh, I, I just I, I think that we're problems aren't going away anytime soon. So I think we're going to we're going to have plenty. But that's a great thing, too, because if we didn't have the problems, then I think a lot of people would be really, really bored. So, yeah, I think we there's there's some great studies about friction and how people are inherently driven sort of toward friction in their lives. And um, there's a certain sort of kind of brain that actually like loves friction mm-hmm. and it's hard-coded into us evolutionarily to uh, thrive in in areas where we have some level of friction 
And um, actually a lot of addicts have that sort of drive for friction. And um, many of us can create friction in our own lives, create drama, create things yeah. when life is too easy, right? Yeah. Um, because we are hardwired to want to continue to grow and evolve and develop. Uh, I feel very hopeful for the future. And I see um, a lot of us sort of elevating our skill sets and hopefully releasing some of the things that, that we don't mm. want to do uh, by leveraging AI to support us and assist us in our daily lives and and really free us up to live wholer, fuller lives where we're engaging in, in all the pieces that we want to be engaged with. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Anything that you're working on that you want people to know about or anything you, you'd really want to kind of hammer into the audience while you have a couple minutes left? The biggest thing is is this idea of hope. You know, I think some mm. people fall into the trap of of actually thinking about a dystopia or all the things that could go wrong. Um, as you mentioned, we'll always have problems, mm. we'll, but we'll always have solutions too, I think. Mm. And um, I'm actually really excited to see when we have a little more capacity freed up just in terms of humanity, but also myself, uh, what are the problems that we sort of revisit and revise? Mm. In terms of, we think, again, going back to the very beginning, we think we've solved certain problems, but have we really, have we solved them in, in <laughs> yeah. the way that's maybe best for us long-term? Um, maybe people will start growing gardens again and growing their own food. I mean, we've only stopped doing that in the past few generations. It was, you know, pretty commonplace previously for people to grow 70 plus percent of their own food. Um, that's just one, you know, one tiny example, but I think of sort of the return on time that we'll get in our lives. And I'm actually super curious to see how people spend it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Talk soon. Hey, thanks for tuning into Plain Sight presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. If you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.